0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Season 2, Episode 7 of the Average 2 Elite Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Chris Lowe, and today I was joined by uh, James Moran, who's a performance nutritionist for Team in Cycling and Team Uno X Cycling. And today we essentially aim to answer the question of how to eat like a pro cyclist. So how do pro cyclists eat to maximize body composition? maximize performance recovery uh immune function adaptation robustness uh the list does go on so there's a huge amount of insights nuggets and lessons uh you can extract from today to implement and apply into your own cycling uh so without any further ado let's get into today's episode Mm -hmm. James, a big thank you for joining me on the podcast today. I really appreciate and value your time being on. So, big thank you. And uh, first and foremost, how are you?
1: Yeah, good, thank you. Um, yeah, um, busy supporting a lot of uh, bike racing and training remotely from, from my home in Manchester. Um, not allowed to travel to Europe at the moment, but yeah, all good, healthy.
0: Very good, great to hear. So I clearly know who you are, but for the uh, listeners who may not, uh, can you just give a really brief uh, background and insight into yourself and into your life, please?
1: Yeah, um, so my name is James Moran. I'm a performance nutritionist and registered dietitian. Um, I currently work with Ineos Grenadiers professional cycling team as a nutritionist and UNOX pro cycling team as head of nutrition. So I do. Two roles there. Um, before moving into road cycling, I worked in the English Institute of Sport with a few different uh, sports and teams, including British cycling, uh, British para-swimming, British equestrian, and a few other projects. And then before that, I was a clinical dietitian in the NHS for, for 10 years and worked a lot with athletes with type 1 diabetes and general public with, with diabetes as well. So, me, I um, live in Manchester two young children and um, like to keep fit as, as much as my children allow me to with running and cycling um,
0: yeah I was sounding very cool so I think it's safe to say you're a very good person to have on the podcast today to answer the question of how do elite cyclists eat to maximise performance and that is essentially what I'd love to get into today so with all kind of uh, podcasts I like to just start really nice and broad uh, kind of get some formal definitions in place And then we could just sort of narrow down again to the uh, specifics then. So, first and foremost, um, what key characteristics does an elite cyclist need to have?
1: Um, Well, they need to be extremely fit (laughs) for for a start. So, you know, they they will have a a very high aerobic capacity. So, you know, a very finely tuned heart heart and lungs um, and the ability to kind of perform. For long periods of time and um, so to be really fit and robust and um, typically guys will do 30 to 35 hour training weeks um so yeah and you know anywhere from 80 100 race days over the year in different kind of weather altitude and um, travel and yeah i find of all the different athletes i've worked with i've, I've worked with, with a few boxers as well but i find that um Professional road cyclists are some of the toughest um, athletes, I think, in, in the world. In terms of, you know, regular crashing, you know, the, the mercy of elements, um, going up and down mountain passes. You know, so on, on TV, people people who don't follow cycling might see kind of a, a skinny, you know, 68 kilo cyclist who, who, who may look malnourished, but these are very strong, very fit, very, very resilient uh, characters. Uh, a a brief
0: summary yeah cool so I think we can kind of just break that down into perhaps a few different kind of areas then so you mentioned like sort of like a large aerobic base so you got like the cardiovascular endurance side of things you got like the strength and power development and also the body composition side of things as well and from speaking to a lot of uh, cyclists or just any form of endurance athlete this idea of power-to-weight ratio is absolutely huge to them and it's the gospel and is everything they kind of live by and train by. So in terms of your work with your cyclists, um, how much emphasis do you put on power-to-weight ratio?
1: Yeah, I think it's something that is is important, but it's very much kind of terrain-specific. So at, within a squad, you may have, you know, a Colombian rider who weighs 58 kilos or 60 kilos who they where they perform best is is kind of in the high mountains so power to to weight so relative how much power they can produce relative to their body mass is important because they're performing against gravity so these guys you know tend to be be leaner and lighter whereas for guys who need to perform on kind of flatter terrain or in kind of like the classics or races in Belgium, which are, you know, brutal races over cobblestones with short, short, sharp climbs, but more flatter terrain, then absolute power is, is the priority. So being able to sustain high power outputs for, for long periods of time. So kind of power to weight isn't necessarily the, the be all and end all in that kind of racing. And I think quite often amateur or not elite athletes kind of forget that and think that the only way you can be a good cyclist is to be kind of as lean and light as possible and it's not always the case you know you'll see large variation within a squad of body composition even with an elite squad so there's kind of not one size fits all with with cycling which is a good, the cool thing about the sport
0: absolutely and like you said i think a lot of um cyclists do get into that thought process of I just need to be lean, 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 and then you almost you just like large diminishing returns on this. Like again, looking at say low energy availability and all that kind of stuff. Um, have you sort of seen athletes kind of almost just get sucked into that rabbit hole and seen any kind of negatives around that in terms of performance, health, robustness?
1: Yeah, hundred um, percent. Just just last week, actually, uh, a rider that I've been working with, um, a Norwegian rider, kind of did like a, a piece um, with the Norwegian media about how he was in that trap and was trying to maintain his weight in the mid sixties kilos, and he was never able to perform and kind of prone to getting sick and just not being able to, yeah, deliver what he everybody thought he was able to, and now he. I've been working with him for the past year and he's sitting kind of 72 to 75 kilos. So a significantly heavier guy, but more healthy and more powerful and more robust than had his first um, UCI win last year. So, yeah, it's a trap. And I've I've seen, especially with younger guys who will look at somebody like a Grand Tour winner, like like Chris Froome or Geraint Thomas, who is in their late 20s or early 30s, who's been on a 10 or 15 year journey to get to that shape for winning the Tour de France and think at 19, 20 years old, I have to be in that, in that shape. And it's, yeah, it's it's hard. I think, um, yeah, social media and comparisons and things don't don't help. But, um, yeah, it's definitely an issue. It's something with young athletes I'm, yeah, I deal with a lot.
0: Yeah, really interesting. So with that, that cyclist who end up getting his first UCI win, um what sorry just to recap, what weight did he go from and to? So you entered around sort of the mid seventies, but what did he um start at? Yeah, so he'd he'd been around 64
1: 65 kilos for a large part of his um yeah, career. He I think he's only twenty-four now. So there was a bit of kind of growth and maturation in that as well. But I think just this preoccupation with I need to be a climber, I need to be as 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 skinny and light as possible was probably doing him a disservice and he was never able to, to perform well because he was constantly underfueled. you know he's in low energy availability so a lot of uh things like testosterone and you know muscle growth and development was probably suppressed for quite a long time and it almost feels that since he's been fueling properly and got a much more balanced approach with his nutrition it's he's a completely different specimen he looks more like an athlete now whereas on this article he posted a picture and he, he looked like a skinny little boy really whereas now he looks like an athlete and it's yeah it's been quite refreshing
0: yeah that's amazing to hear so obviously from his mental perspective adding 10 kilos on must have been a very challenging journey for him was it a case of something just click with him and he's fully on board to so just you know just bang on so 10 kilos or was it a case of you really have to work and refine everything and then just by him seeing small results from eating properly, that kind of just built up the momentum you had there?
1: Yeah, a bit of both. I think he'd, he'd started to gain a lot of it over the past two years and then around like 69 kilos. Um, and even then he was kind of on that edge of being worried about, about gaining weight. And when we did body composition assessment, so things like skin folds, measures he was kind of super super skinny like he was in the shape that you'd expect somebody about to enter the Tour de France and this was in January December so I was able to kind of use numbers to kind of reassure him that even if he gained a few kilos he would still be really really kind of lean but his performance would improve so having having that kind of relationship and and being able to present numbers and evidence and comparisons with other other athletes and things just
0: help reassure yeah absolutely and again i think a lot of people um forget that power to weight ratio can come from two sort of areas yes the body composition but actually fueling performance to generate adaptations and get stronger and produce more power and exactly. i guess that's probably what happened there and i yeah. guess if so if they if you just perhaps overly restricted for a long period of time and then all of a sudden then or perhaps overly restricted in this perhaps catabolic state for a long period of time, then added in extra calories, like I said, you're going to get that extra sort of growth of lean tissue and combined with maturation um, is probably going to come on quite quickly.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, anecdotally, his coach and and, and him had told me that he'd, he'd grown something like four or five centimetres in the past six months. And this is a guy who, who's 23, so he's not like, a, not like a growth spurt you'd see in a teenage athlete. It's, almost feels that everything's just been switched back on like his body's kind of now responding and everything's a lot more balanced um i mean power to weight ratio is important but it's kind of not not the only important thing and there's a difference even in professional cycling Now, if you are a contender for winning the tour de france then you need a certain power to weight ratio to be within those top five to ten riders and you know, optimizing 500 grams or a, a kilo of weight in those guys at certain parts of the year is important. But then that filters down all the way to amateur cyclists who think that you know, by dropping 500 grams or a kilo, they're suddenly going to become you know a world beater. And it's it's a lot more nuanced than that. As yeah, I'm sure you're aware
0: absolutely when amateur riders are dropping 500 quid on the seat post to save a couple of grams it's uh it gets pretty incredible doesn't it yeah and it's really interesting just uh on that as well just like the idea of just being really light and how it's just gonna completely impair like a cyclist career progression i remember having a cyclist come to me before and he's, re- he's pretty lean and he's like chris i uh, need to get lighter can i drop muscle how do we drop muscle i was like hang on this is absolutely ridiculous like if you think all of this whole idea of power to weight ratio if you drop muscle you're going to drop power you're going to drop strength so you're actually going to be worse but the process of going down is going to be horrible and maintaining that is going to be horrible and you're going to be worse after the overall so this kind of like this whole mindset and concept of power to it is you know it's absolutely crazy it's bizarre with um cyclists just looking to maximize performance when they're just missing the, the bigger picture
1: yeah and yeah and you know there's there's muscle mass and then there's functional muscle mass so it depends on your holistic approach as a nutritionist if if you have got somebody who is one of these like grand tour contenders so you know trying to win the Tour de France then having excessive upper body muscle w- could c- actually be counterproductive but you certainly wouldn't want to compromise any muscle mass that's used to to propel the bike forward and that's really hard to kind of do in practice it's a nice idea in theory but it's quite quite hard to do
0: yeah absolutely so one of the things you mentioned there was um perhaps peaking for body composition so again we're looking at like the the top boys now looking to uh, contend for top spots in de France how do you kind of periodize their whole year in terms of body comp and peaking then uh that just fascinates me so obviously it's gonna be quite difficult to maintain peak condition all the way around all year round yeah. so how is your approach to this in terms of the yearly uh, periodization and the approach
1: yeah so it, it would start usually in in the off season and it it'd routinely be a discussion with myself the rider and the coach about what what their aims are what the rider's aims are for for that next season and then kind of work backwards from there so when when do they need to be in peak peak body composition and what time of year um and then how, how do we kind of get, get to that point in the in the best way possible? Um, actually defining what somebody's ideal weight or body composition needs to be is, is quite hard. And I, yeah, there's not like a black or white way of, of figuring that out. You know, some riders will come with a, an idea, I need to be 68 kilos or I need to be 69 kilos. But quite often that's just based on the fact that they've weighed that once. But it might not necessarily be best for, for performance. It might add up in a nice equation of power to weight, but if they can't produce that power at that weight, then it becomes yeah, become null and void. Um, and then we would look to kind of, yeah, just along the way, we'd have small, small milestones of where where we'd like the weight to be, um, where periods where we can perhaps push a bigger energy deficit. So try and drop a bit more weight and then periods where we need to fuel because somebody riding the Tour de France in June or July still has to race and perform <laughs> along the way so we have to fuel those those uh, races yeah along the way so it's almost like a bit of a kind of roller coaster um rather than a linear kind of straight just losing weight all year.
0: Absolutely so it's just frequent or touch points along the way to review and assess uh how things are going so body weight was there now it's this. skin folds so body composition is this what's like your KPIs, like how's your performance, recovery, freshness, fatigue, all that kind of stuff, and then just modify and adjust accordingly?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly that. Um, Yeah, and again, you know, we'd we'd look at blood work as well. So we'd sometimes look at hormonal markers, um, you know, just to see how how they're doing holistically so that the doctor would be involved in that. And, you know, if there's any red flags with testosterone dropping or, yeah um and just other things like how they feel you know how the rider feels you know mentally and it's all of these kind of things together that you know as a as a nutritionist then you you speak with the coach and say okay maybe we need to you know feed them a bit more and kind of back off a little bit and then okay maybe we can res- restrict the, the calories a little bit in conjunction with the rider so it's a bit of a jumble of all these different things numbers um data opinion quite often from the rider and coach and then you as a nutritionist trying to put that into actual food and fueling and what they eat
0: yeah. very nice so like i said there's not just right here's your nutrition program your meal plan whatever right this is you for the next six months uh i you in six months Simon. Uh, hopefully you can be at the end goal is frequent yeah. touch points they're ready to adapt and pivot based on yes what the perhaps their bloods are saying how they're feeling their subjective markers their performance On all this kind of stuff,
1: yeah, and you know, as everybody knows, losing weight is is hard, and it's kind of yeah, not 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 pleasant. And some of these guys might naturally be way you know high mid to high seventies, and they're trying to get to kind of high sixties in kilos for for a race. So they're trying to you know manipulate six to ten kilos. You know, they're trying to get to a weight that's probably not. They wouldn't be walking around at that weight so you have to accept that there's a human that you're you're working with and, and mood and behavior and all the other things associated with food choice and all those things you have to kind of try and try and work with the with the person rather than the numbers is always my
0: approach that's really interesting a lot of cyclists and any endurance athlete would think that they should be in peak condition all year round just walking around absolutely sort of shredded raised uh, ready ready for everything um why perhaps is that not a good idea for them
1: yeah i mean some like, like say some of the weights are peak body composition for performance it probably isn't peak body composition for health so you know trying to maintain uh you know five percent body fat year round is going to compromise muscle function it's going to probably compromise immune function and then riders get sick so they can't train and so it's all of all of these things. So some re- some athletes are quite lucky um in that they have quite a narrow bandwidth of weight, you know, so they don't necessarily have to lose much weight and they stay pretty lean year round just because of their genetics or you yeah, whatever. Um other and guys, you know. To, yeah, exactly. Other guys really have to work hard at it. Um so yeah, it's 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 highly individual, but yeah, uh, it's health and performance have to kind of be aligned um if 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 one isn't aligned then the other will soon fall apart
0: yeah 100 as as we know like health is going to be the foundation for everything like yes you may look great but if you're not healthy and you can't perform then you know not ideal for overall career progression and actually winning races even showing up to races
1: exactly and quite commonly what i will see with riders who i've just started working with but they've not had a lot of nutrition support in the past they will have tried to manipulate body composition and weight themselves so they'll, they'll routinely drop some weight quite quickly perform really well for maybe a week or two weeks and think think everything's going great and then something will normally happen so an injury like a, a soft tissue injury or illness or something will normally happen and then they'll have to stop training and racing and quite often it's just because they've tried to do too much too soon and, and there's there's been a trade-off. Um, so a lot of what I do is educating around what is optimal body composition, where we kind of can sit off-season, where we maybe need to sit in-season and then where we try and peak and, and how we get to that point instead of just randomly aiming for a, a number that that sounds nice in in terms of power-to-weight ratio.
0: Superb. No, I really like that. And I think that's just quite a nice way to kind of cap off the body composition side of things. Um, So when we say transition into the performance element, because obviously they're elite cyclists, they need to perform. um, How do you best uh, fuel a professional and elite cyclist? Is there any kind of paradigms or processes you go through here to make sure that they're fully fueled and good to go? Yeah. um, Carbohydrate. So
1: Again, one of the things I, I'll speak about with academy and junior athletes is in cycling, there's, all, there's always the need to chase the new innovation or supplement or, you know, ketones, for example, are getting a lot of press at the moment. But for me, the biggest kind of performance enhancing kind of substance is, is carbohydrate. And it's so, even with elite guys, often un, underutilized for fear of weight gain or, yeah, I don't know. There's still a lot of stigma around it. So when we're coming into a kind of period where guys need to perform, then we need to practice uh, high carbohydrate intakes in training and on the bike so that the digestive system can adapt to being able to process high amounts of carbohydrate on the bike and perform and produce high power outputs. Um, so, yeah, that's that's the, the long and short of it, really.
0: We can pretty much just like sum up, um, optimizing performance based nutrition to eat enough carbohydrates or eat adequate carbohydrates. It is really that straightforward. And like I say, we can kind of chase the latest, newest innovation, but ultimately like carbohydrates are king. They drive performance so incredibly well. And, um, and it's still crazy that even at the highest level, there's perhaps some scarcity around carbohydrates and the fear of body fat gain, weight gain and everything like that. Um, yeah, yeah, incredible. Do, do you perhaps have a chat with them in terms of yes, body weight may increase a little bit after say high carbohydrate intakes carbohydrate loading, just to improve glycogen stores, and just kind of manage the expectations around that as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some some guys, you know, that this is where relationship and getting to know the athletes you're working with and the athlete getting to know their body, you know. So some riders will jump on the scales in the morning of a race and and almost be panicked because the number's gone up but then more experienced riders will will see that's a positive thing because it shows well actually i'm i'm really well fueled you know my muscles and liver are are brimming full of glycogen and carbohydrates so i'm I'm really good to go they know that you know four hours into a ride a lot of that glycogen is going to have been used up so it's understanding that i know we're talking about weight again but when you jump on the scales it's not that's not just kind of fat bone and muscle there's kind of glycogen and water in your in your muscle and also um the content of your digestive system as well you know so if somebody's been eating a lot of fiber then they'll perhaps be a little bit heavier and in certain periods of the year that that's fine in certain periods of the year we might try and reduce that um fiber left in the bowel a little bit but yeah it's just understanding all of those together
0: yeah i'm really glad you said that it is like putting fuel in the car like the car will just get heavier and <laughs> you know, that that that's a good sign to show that you do have high carbohydrate availability. There's carbohydrates in the muscle, liver, and you're in a very good position to start the race. So yeah,
1: um, I mean, again, within professional cycling, professional road cycling, the role within in a team can be quite different. So a stage on paper might look like an expected hard or a medium or an easy day, but that can look very different for the guys called the domestiques who have to do a lot of the work on the front pulling in the wind who'll be producing higher power to kind of push the wind out of the way so their energy expenditure is higher perhaps like a protected rider might be tucked in behind and shielded from a lot of the wind and their energy expenditure is a lot lower so therefore they might not need as much calories and carbohydrate on on that day and that's where it becomes a bit more kind of nuanced and subtle but they all need carbohydrates to be able to perform is the bottom line
0: yeah so you would pay very much periodize carbohydrate intake throughout the training week and going into say um yeah a few races back to back as well
1: yeah definitely and then even within within riders you know periodizing it would look very different um some guys can do a lot of work on not very much carbohydrate other guys kind of have different thresholds for kind of how much carbohydrate they, they might need to get through different levels of work, um, which again probably comes down to genetics um training age um, proportions of kind of fast switch and slow switch muscle fibers, you know, all, all of these things together. And that's where understanding the individual rider and then helping them with their own individual plan is key. I think if you just try and employ a kind of grams per kilo approach for carbohydrate to a whole squad of riders. You'll it'll work for some riders. Some ga- riders it'll be too much, and they might gain gain body fat. Believe it or not, over a stage race. Other guys, it might be way too much, and they'll underperform. So, the kind of nutrition guidelines and looking at grams per kilo for different sessions are a start point. But then you have to really refine it for for the individuals.
0: Yeah, I absolutely love that. With all recommendations from like the literature, it's a case of this on a whole like on average this should work but then let's be prepared to refine it based on you
1: yeah and again with you know the elite of the elite the guys racing and contending the Tour de France these are kind of we spoke a bit about genetics but these are genetic freaks you know these are the real outliers of of physiology and and nutrition and how their bodies adapt you know I've learned so much from working with these guys about physiology but you know, comparing the physiology of a Grand Tour winner to comparing the physiology to you or me is, is, is like a different species almost. So I think that can often be lost with recreational or amateur races. They, what applies to them wouldn't necessarily apply to Grand Tour contender and, and vice versa.
0: Yeah, brilliant. And again, it just goes back to that comparison. Uh, so I think this individual here is eating this much, they're doing this, they're eating their, those kind of foods. I should do that as well. Well, exactly. maybe not.
1: Yeah, exactly. And especially with kind of, you know,
0: not professional
1: athletes or kind of sub elite athletes who have a job, you know, as well. So as well as like family stresses, you know, so these guys who cycling is that their, their job. So they're doing five to seven hours on the bike every day. That's, that's their job. They don't then have to go to the office or, you know, be, be up late on, on emails and doing zoom calls and things like that. So that's, that can often be missed all the kind of lifestyle stress that is probably more in a, in an amateur or sub elite athlete doesn't get enough kind of attention.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it just comes back to that holistic kind of approach. It isn't just like calories in versus calories out is looking at the psychological stress of just life essentially uh, yeah. perhaps fragmented sleep, poor sleep quality, all that kind of stuff. Uh, That comes with the additional life, early starts, late finishes, the nine-to-five kind of hustle and grind. Yes. So, yeah, very very interesting. Uh, One of the things you mentioned there in terms of uh, just looking at the different engine needs for riders based on where they're situated within the race or within a pack. Um, So how do you figure that out? Obviously, we've got quite a few ways of measuring it, some more accurate than others. So you might look at, say, your parameters, your garments, sort of, um, watch or your sort of like headset, stuff like that. What do you typically use to determine their energy expenditure? Is it a certain equation? Is it a parameter? I'd love to know uh, how you actually derive a number and then how accurate you think that number is.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a combination of things. I mean, we're lucky in cycling to have power, power output. And from that you can kind of predict energy expenditure on the bike Bike energy expenditure within within a kind of uh, yeah a range, so that would be kind of a start point. Um, But then somebody might have expended three thousand calories on a a long easy ride, or they might have expended three thousand calories on a kind of shorter but higher intensity ride. So they're going to burn through more carbohydrate relative to the, the harder session. So you know if you if you treated the energy expenditure the same for both, both uh, rides then yeah you're kind of not not taking it all into account. But other things like weather you know if they're at altitude if it's hot if it's cold and then speaking to the rider you know you might look at the numbers on their training data and think oh that was, wasn't was too, too hard and then they'll come back on the bus and they'll be oh that was a really hard day today so then you kind of have to think okay maybe you know the numbers aren't telling us the whole, whole picture and it might need a little bit more carbohydrate to recover optimally than what we were thinking. So yeah, it's all of those combined really that we look at.
0: And again, it comes down to, we kind of got the numbers, got the data and then that guides our practice. It isn't like, right, if you burn 3,256 calories on the bike today, you need to eat 3,256 calories. Like there is some kind of, um, sort of subjective kind of measures in there as well.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you know these guys are very attuned to their own body, so they they know how how they feel and their sensations on the bike. And you can get a, a lot just by them describing how how they feel and how they fueled and and those kind of things. So it's it's joining a lot of the dots. And um, I think, like I said, when when you start treating it as a, a strict numbers in numbers out equation exercise, then it, yeah, with with these kind of guys, it, it it's not often going to fit.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 100%. So just to touch on, so we kind of looked at the performance side of things and we very much uh, come to the conclusion that carbohydrates are absolute boss when it comes to maximizing performance, especially like the higher intensity based work. So when we come to like the recovery side of things now, um, is there any protocols you put in place for maximizing recovery? Does the timeframe between sessions or races come come to account and play a big factor? What is your typical kind of uh, approach to that?
1: Yeah. So with recovery, I, I always ask ask the rider the question or the athlete, so what are you recovering from and what are you recovering for? So and then that can then shape how, how aggressively we need to need to act. So in a training environment, if somebody's done like three or a four hour really general low intensity ride and then they're not training again for twenty hours, then do we need to be super aggressive with with kind of you know four grams per kilo of carbohydrate within those first few hours because they've actually got quite a long time to to recover um before they go again. And if it's been quite a low intensity training ride, they might not need heaps of carbohydrate because a lot of what is used in that session may be more more fat. Um, the other thing we'd be looking at is their body composition and time of the year, you know. So if it's they've got a stage race and then they've got three days training and then a stage race again, then we need to kind of keep them fresh and well recovered as if it's a really long uh, training phase, then we don't necessarily need to be be kind of yet putting lots and lots of carbohydrate and calories in recovery each day. If we're trying to manage energy balance overall Um, in race, we'd be quite aggressive. You know, if we've got two back to back hard days, so then it'd be textbook sports nutrition and trying to hit high numbers of easily digestible carbohydrate and things like, white rice um you know sugary foods we'd often use smoothies to kind of get some fructose and some fruit sugar in there to replenish liver liver glycogen as well as muscle glycogen for the for the next day um good quality protein so you know routinely whey protein after a after a stage and then chicken or some meat or fish and um, quite often cake um we, we're looking to have Within us, we have a chef, so the chef will make like a, a cake that we've given kind of recipe and clearance on, and the riders will have that as part of the recovery as well. So, yeah, nothing, nothing super flash or fancy, just carbohydrates and usually lots, lots of them in that extreme setting.
0: I think every listener's uh, ears have peaked up a little bit when you said they can have cake.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that yeah, that wouldn't be kind of all the time. That'd be you know in. In hard races and training, but again, I think that sometimes can be something that um, recreational or, or sub elite athletes and riders can be guilty of. They'll kind of think, "Oh, well, I've I've burnt a lot of calories there, so therefore I can kind of have all these high high fat, high sugar foods afterwards." And then they look at the end of the week and actually weight hasn't changed because they've kind of overestimated how how much they've expended and then put a lot more lot more back in. Um, so, yeah, cakes takes always a favorite.
0: Yeah, brilliant. Uh So it kind of comes down to the case of like healthy isn't always optimal, especially when it comes to your ability to recover. Sometimes you just need to me- eat, sorry, meet the energy demands of that day. And, you know, if they got perhaps a later finish and a confined period of time to actually get that much calories and food in, sometimes you have to go for like obviously the sugar-based stuff and perhaps even, like the higher-based stuff just to minimize and offset that deficit, would it be right and saying?
1: Yeah definitely and you know some guys might might struggle with appetite as well after you know some of these really hard hard days and sessions so we would sometimes periodize within a day or a week kind of fruits and vegetables and fiber because we, we know one of the benefits of fiber is that it takes longer to digest so it, it it can reduce appetite and if someone's got a low appetite to start with you don't want to be filling their stomach up necessarily with, with lots of low calorie vegetables so you know, when, when we need to perform and maximize carbohydrate recovery, then we would, you know, probably reduce some of those fruits and vegetables and try and get them in with smoothies or soups or on a day where it wasn't such a high energy demand, then we would try and maximize fruits and vegetables and things like that. Then, so it's periodizing of, of kind of everything carbohydrate in terms of when we need it to perform or we need high carb, carbohydrate ability availability we ramp it up but on kind of easier days we will we'll taper it down and same with same with fruits and vegetables in in the race environment
0: yeah that's awesome that's really interesting so when carbohydrates are high fruit and veggies are typically low and then vice versa so when carbohydrate is low we can bump up fruit and vegetables to bulk up the fiber content and just manage uh satiety hunger levels and all that stuff
1: yeah um and some some guys will eat both they'll manage to eat high carb and high fruits and vegetables some guys are quite sensitive so again it's it's individual but yeah that's, that's the broad concept and then in the training environment it's yeah we, we'd always be kind of high fruits and vegetables for immune health gut function you know all the all the myriad of things we get from from fruits and vegetables I always describe fruits and vegetables as being like if you think of kind of carbohydrates as the as the uh petrol in a car and protein is like the hardware like the tires and the body the fruits and vegetables like the kind of oil and the screen wash you know you can you'll get from a to b but things will start breaking down if, you, if you're not looking after the, the oil and the screen wash and all those other little things and yeah fruits and vegetables play a big part in all that
0: yeah i love that analogy that that's really nice i like that so just to touch on the uh, immune function side of things obviously the the riders are going to have a huge amount of physiological stress on placed on the body um how can we best keep athletes healthy is there anything you implement in team in us or is there any kind of protocols or do you periodize certain supplementation uh what's your typical um, yearly kind of approach to this
1: yeah i mean yeah it is important and as as riders get closer to those big goals like the tour de france or you know big stage races where they've often um accrued a lot of training and a lot of stress and some of the guys have tried you know to get to that peak body composition so like managing energy availability we need to really wrap a lot of support around them to, to keep them healthy um but real basic things that kind of yeah not not glamorous or sexy but you know a big emphasis on hand hygiene you know and now now with covid times it's even more prevalent but i think yeah hand gel hand washing hygiene all those kind of things sleep so we pay a lot of attention to good sleep quality and minimizing blue light exposure in the evening and trying to taper down caffeine to get, you know, a good eight hours of minimum sleep. Fruits and vegetables as well in different formats. Um vitamin D status kind of throughout the year. So with different teams and things I work with, it's nice if you can have a blood test, but I think in in Europe and Northern Europe we should just assume that we're, we're deficient in vitamin D and Supplement with 2,000 to 4,000 a day through the winter units, international units a day is probably a good approach. Um, and carbohydrate, you know, so making sure that riders have got good carbohydrate availability because that plays such a big part in immune function and it's a fuel for the immune function as system as well as the muscles carbohydrate. That's probably one of the first things I'll work on with a rider if, they're prone to kind of coughs and colds and respiratory infections. I'd first thing I'd look at is what's their carbohydrate availability been like around their training. Routinely, that'd be one of the first things I'd try and fix. Um,
0: that's that's really and- interesting because um a lot of people listening to this would probably think that you know elite cyclists top the sport are doing all this crazy kind of nasa level of technology all this like innovative stuff but a large part of it is just doing the simple basic stuff extremely well and extremely consistently
1: yeah absolutely um yeah and that's you know where the marginal gains terms come you know a lot of these things are quite they're not glamorous or they're not sexy and so it's it's easy to like not pay them a lot of attention, but if you're optimizing your sleep and all these other big rocks of kind of nutrition and health, then all of the the rocket science and the, the NASA technology, then then that will work. Whereas if, if you're not optimizing all of these things, then just wasting money and resource on, on the latest kit and tech. Yeah. I mean, zinc and vitamin C supplementation is something that's used, you know, at the onset of like a cough, cough and cold symptoms to reduce the length that somebody gets gets sick for so we would use that on and off but not all of the time because you know that using zinc can interfere with like copper and iron metabolism so try and discourage athletes from using zinc year round but at the onset of coughs and colds and same with vitamin C like using high dose vitamin C can interfere with training adaptations. adaptation so we encourage you know good amounts of vitamin C through the diet but only supplement with vitamin C if, if there's a symptoms of a cough or a cold.
0: Yeah, no, I really like that. So with the zinc, is that say zinc tablets or that is that lozenges on the onset of like upper respiratory tract infections?
1: Yeah, zinc lozenges because they have to work in the the oral cavity, so they have to work in the in the mouth. And my understanding of it is that they they trap the virus in the mouth, so the actual they have to be sucked in. Containing the oral cavity to trap the virus, so zinc tablets wouldn't wouldn't do that. So it has to be a zinc lozenge. Um, yeah, yeah. And then the root, you know, the, the holy trinity of kind of like a, a bit of a coverall of, of supplements would be like a multivitamin and omega three and a pro or a pro and or a, a prebiotic just to kind of cover all bases from from gut and respiratory and just general general health. Um, they'd be the only supplements that I'd I'd probably advocate for yeah 99% of uh, athletes
0: super no that's really cool so you've got a nice kind of understanding of say the body composition uh the fueling, the recovery the immune function so how do you know whether a plan a nutrition program or intervention is working do you have any kind of key performance indicators you work off uh, so when you have your one-to-one consultations with your riders, is there a certain criteria you look to sort of identify and ask them? Right, is this plan working? Is it not? And if not, what do we need to change? What's your kind of system and approach there?
1: Yeah. Um, again, you know, it's, it's, there's a bit of a theme. It's, it's not as black and white and one size fits all with, with all all riders. Um, it's, it's looking at everything in the context. Have have their numbers on the bike been what, what's expected from them and their coach? And if if not, why not? Is, is there a nutritional angle that, that we need to optimise? Um, and, yeah, looking at all, all of these things together, really, um, all their power and body composition. Um, kind of performance in race is, is quite subjective because you might have had, like, an all-time physiological best performance but tactically the race might have not gone your way or you might have been caught out or you might have had a crash and so kind of taking winning or losing a race is yeah it, there's a lot that goes into, into that other than just the physiology and nutritional condition of somebody so it's yeah all of those things together really um,
0: yeah. cool no really nice again it comes back that holistic kind of approach doesn't it and there's more to just is a plan working yes no when comparing to their FTP. Is the FTP gone yep. up? Nutrition's working. Has it gone down? Oh, we need to change everything. Exactly. <laughs> nutrition program's crap. Like we need to uh, do X, Y, Z and flip everything around.
1: Yeah. And I think because cycling is so numbers driven, you know, you can get so many metrics and numbers attached to your performance that, yeah, you, you know, it is very easy to fall into that trap, you know, X equals Y. Oh, and it's, it's much more comp. It's not a kind of, um, yeah, it's not, it's not as simple as that, you know, it's a bit of a, a black box, there's a lot of inputs and, and kind of one a few outputs, but it's understanding the, the patterns and, and trends over years, really.
0: Do you see um, quite a lot of amateur riders fall into that sort of trap where just becoming almost like paralyzed by all like the numbers that, and the data that they're given and almost like don't really know how to interpret it and feel like they need to change everything on a daily basis and almost just get a little bit sort of confused and overwhelmed and stressed by it
1: yeah definitely and it's like paralysis by analysis there's just too much kind of data and numbers that yeah ultimately if you want to be a better cyclist you just need to ride your bike lots and eat fairly well you know at, at the end of the day but i think we can nutrition and training can get very very com- complicated and over complicated whereas nutrition point of view if you're riding a lot and riding hard you need to increase your carbohydrate intake (laughs) and you know as 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 simple as that
0: yeah so what do you say then to the individuals who perhaps read like a blog or something like that looking at low carbohydrate variability training i train low first of all do you implement that in terms of the off-season pre-season um and what's your perhaps thoughts about that who's it kind of relevant for should everybody do it or is it just designed for the top guys or is even is there any kind of utility in this anyway yeah so i'm i'm kind of on the fence
1: with with low carbohydrate training i I do use it with some riders at certain times of the year and then other riders i actively discourage them to use it um so the, the thought behind it is that training with kind of restricted carbohydrates so going out for a ride with just a protein-based breakfast or kind of riding day day three or four of a kind of heavy training block that your, your liver and muscle glycogen will be depleted and the muscles kind of detect that there's not much carbohydrate there and it, it makes them kind of change change what, what's going on inside and and send some signals that they need to be better at oxidizing fat and and using oxygen at lower intensities. So there's some research that shows that performing these sessions increases this signal in, in the muscle. But there's not in the literature so far any or many studies that show this directly links to performance. So we would sometimes use it for some guys, you know, if we're just trying to improve their general endurance in the, in the off season. And a lot of what they're doing is low intensity intensity. It can just be a way of increasing that, that training stress without riding harder or longer. You're kind of increasing the stress by restricting carbohydrate. Um, some guys who are kind of more powerful and sprint or classic style guys don't like to do this kind of training and don't do that well on it. So we would, wouldn't do that with them. Um, guys who are required to kind of have a like a grand tour contender who might need to ride for four or five hours at a submaximal intensity needs a high fat burning capacity. But then they also need to be able to utilize carbohydrate to you know race up a mountain to to win that stage. So we would periodize carbohydrate availability training as well. Um, but a lot of these training adaptations you get from consistent training, you know, the muscle will get better at burning fat. Over over a consistent training block, so more often than not, I would prioritise kind of quality and consistency rather than trying to squeeze a, a low carb session in just just for the sake of it. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of my approach. So it depends on on the rider. I think older riders who've got a long training history who've optimised everything and all of these pathways in the muscle are regulated, then it can just be an extra thing to add into. Yeah, squeeze, squeeze some more gains out of it. Whereas a rider who's 18, 19, 20 just needs to be getting lots of hours in on the bike, you know, and, and fueling those hours. Um is bigger bang for the buck.
0: Yeah, very cool. I really like that. Because I just know a lot of cyclists out there will be looking at low carbohydrate availability based training. And you know, they're just missing the bigger picture if they just ate enough to fuel their rides and get really good quality sessions in you're going to get incredible adaptations that way so an almost a case of restricting carbohydrate content it just can be impairing their long-term progress
1: yeah definitely and i think just instead of just focusing on like a session by session looking at kind of a training block in a micro cycle and a you know a macro cycle and over a season sticking in kind of um random low carb sessions might in- increase fat oxidation for that session but then it Somebody's really fatigued the next day because they've have kind of had a rough day with work or they've not fueled properly and then training's impaired for the next few days. Then they've probably actually gone backwards in the progression. Whereas if they, you know, periodize the carbohydrate, so not going super high for a real easy session, um, and then fueling the hard sessions with high carbohydrate is you know, and then controlling carbohydrate on on a rest day perhaps and not over over fueling when and they're just doing a recovery ride, that could be an option to go low-carbohydrate. So there's different options, but it's, it's not a one-size-fits-all. And there's guys at the very top who do lots of low-carb training and guys that kind of avoid it at all costs. I think there's probably yeah somewhere in the middle.
0: Yeah, absolutely, very cool. So, so just coming towards the end of the pod today, um, I really like sort of asking this question. So, a new cyclist joins a team. You have no idea who he or she is, and you've been asked to build them a nutrition program. So, what are the key considerations you have? Um, what essentially is your needs analysis? Is it perhaps maybe two to three or five kind of areas that you really look to identify? in terms of this needs improving okay this is actually great we can maintain this how does your needs analysis direct your intervention essentially
1: yeah so i would always start with the the rider as as a person rather than an athlete and understand kind of what their their behavior is around food what their experience is around kind of food and preferences and culture and especially in cycling we're lucky in the team at this in Team Ineos, there's, there's three nutritionists and two of them speak Spanish and just navigating some of the cultural differences in, you know, a Colombian rider to a British rider to an Italian rider. But yeah, all of those things and understand what they're currently doing with their nutrition is it's, so, so to observe. I'm very reluctant to kind of just give somebody a plan. I'm much I would always ask the rider to kind of show me what they're currently doing and try and assess their knowledge and practice that way and then see, right, where are the big things we can look to improve on, and then go from there. Think an understanding of their their family life, you know, if, if someone's a single rider or they've got a family and kids and the challenges that come with that, um, how they like, like to learn, how they like information. Some guys want grams of rice and that level of detail. Some guys just, you know, want a bit more just guidance of good foods to eat on different days, so yeah try and be guided by the the person rather than the kind of athlete is is my approach
0: yeah fantastic that that's really really cool and then kind of just going into the uh the final question now is for cyclists to go from average to elite from a nutrition perspective what are your top three uh bits of recommendation uh for them
1: yeah so i mean the first one we spoke about is to to keep it simple and not to become kind of too obsessed with the numbers, so you know, not not to to focus on the latest supplement or yeah, what my numbers are doing here and that you know, what are you doing consistently with your your nutrition? You know, is it a keeping you healthy and is it b helping your training progress? With a lot of the kind of cyclists I work with, we work off something called the eighty twenty rule. And it's kind of if you're doing the right things with your nutrition 80% of the time then there's always kind of 20% for kind of pizza and beers and ice cream at the right time of the season and not being too obsessed with having to have everything perfect you know power PBs on every ride perfect nutrition every day because it's just not sustainable and for your head or for your, for your body so yeah keeping it simple and not being too obsessed with the numbers um, plan and prepare so instead of just kind of eating the same breakfast every day, swinging your leg over the bike and just grabbing something from the cupboard, I would always say, look at your training block and that is a minimum at your three or four day training block and see where you're gonna need to eat more carbohydrate and see where you might not need to eat quite as much, but have it planned in advance. So you don't fall into the trap of massively overeating on a kind of easy day because you're tired because you've not fueled well the three days before but then underfueling on a hard day because you've not planned anything and you get in and you're too tired, so you just grab something and fall asleep. So yeah, planning and prepare your nutrition around your your training block. And um, another one. And then yeah, learning learning how to cook and understanding kind of what goes in food, I think is really important. I think my aim when I work with a cyclist is to make them kind of self-sufficient and they kind of just need me as a bit of a resource that i'm not kind of having to hold their hand they understand what their body needs they they can cook they can put a meal together for different training days um and i think you know investing in good quality knives and a good cookbook a rice cooker you know probably have longer to much longer term benefits than you know buying an upgrade on a power meter or you know a stem that's a few grams lighter um those would be my kind of three that I'd be saying to focus on from a nutritionist angle.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. And that's going to be very applicable to every sport, every individual, every sport, every discipline. Uh, there's some like real key kind of uh, take-homes there for sure. And just in the context of um, pro cyclists, obviously when the training blocks are very demanding, they're going to be eating a lot of food, a lot of carbohydrates. And if their food is very, um, you know, it's just not very palatable, it's going to be very hard to kind of get that in. And that's when they perhaps rear down to the easier options that are more palatable and uh, probably don't make the uh, correct food choices as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Um, James has been very insightful today. Thank you very much. where can people uh, follow you and get more up-to-date from your life and your sort of work with team and us?
1: Yeah, um, yeah, thanks for having me. So Twitter, really, um, I think my handle is James E.P. Moran. I, sort of, I tend to just retweet things that I think are interesting in nutrition and sports science and sport. Um, yeah, that'd probably
0: be the best, best place to find me Um Brilliant. James, once again, thank you very much. Um, I've certainly taken a lot away from today's episode. I'm sure listeners have as well. So all the best in the future. Hopefully racing kind of uh, commence in the not so distant future and you can get back on the road and spot them around uh, Europe and not just have to do everything via Zoom.
1: Cheers, Chris. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. And yeah, it's been been a good chat.